If you would open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 all the way through verse 21. I say all the way because I've been, well, probably going maybe a little slow. Two verses. Now we're doing what, four? Making progress. But this is a great letter. And the reason why we've been going slow through these first, first five chapters is because Paul uh, packs so much into this section of Scripture before he gets to the application. He is packing so much truth in here that really we could spend uh, many months on. And as we looked at last week, we were looking at the identity that we have in Christ that we are uh, new creations. And so Paul is now building on that, and he is showing not only uh, who we are in Christ, but he's now showing us how God sends us out to live on mission. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, would you call us to yourself through the Son who had died for us? And Holy Spirit, you who proceeds from the Father and the Son, we call upon you to make us alive and send us out on mission so that we might call others to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to know the love of the Father. We ask all this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. Why do we evangelize? We often know about Christianity that it is one where uh, people evangelize, meaning they go and tell other people the evangel, which is the English word which mirrors the Greek for gospel, good news. We, we go out gospeling, we go out telling people good news, but why do we do that? There's a medical missionary by the name of Wilfred Grenfell, and he was once invited to a dinner that was given in his honor. While Wilfred Grenfell was there, one lady came up to him and asked, is it true that you are a missionary? Grenfell wisely replied, saying this, Isn't it true that you are as well? You see, all Christians, because of being a Christian, all Christians are called to evangelize. Some people more formally, some people more uh, full-time vocationally, but all Christians, because of who we are, are called to evangelize. Jesus 
says in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And here's what he is saying with his authority. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What's amazing is that when Jesus gave that commandment to all those who were in his presence at that moment, it's because of that command that the gospel has come here to Stillwater 2,000 years later. That's why we are here. So now what do we do? We continue to tell people about the gospel of grace. It's very familiar to Oklahomans of what tornadoes are like. Tornadoes, well, it, when it comes through, it brings things in and then it shoots them out. Well, Jesus very much is like a tornado. When he brings people to himself, he doesn't just keep them there. He sends them out on mission. That's why we evangelize. And primarily here, we see in this text, we evangelize because we have a message we evangelize because as Christians, we have a message. Look back at verse 18. All this, talking about how we've been made new, how we've been reconciled to God, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Why do we evangelize? We evangelize because we have a message. And our message is a message of Trinitarian salvation. You see there in verse 18 how God, and when it's talking about God, it is primarily referring to the Father. How all of this is from the Father who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And we know that Wherever the Father and the Son is, wherever they are at work, so also is the Holy Spirit. Indeed, it is God the Father working through the Son, reconciling us by the Holy Spirit. We believe that our God is one God who exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it is this one God in three who saves us. We have a Trinitarian message. And what that means is this, we can see this in other portions of Scripture as well, that it is the Father who plans our salvation. It is the Son who purchases our salvation, and it is the Spirit who applies that salvation. It is also the Spirit who revives us. The Son in heaven represents us, and the Father is the one who receives us. Now, you see that ordering there, right? The Father through the Son by the Spirit. And when the Spirit comes within us to cause us to be born again, He brings us to the Father through the Son. What is the message in our evangelism? It is the message that God has come to save us to bring us to himself. Amen? It's awesome. The Father lovingly chose to save us. 
the Son lovingly comes down to save us. And the Spirit lovingly comes within us to save us. Guys, the good news of the gospel is that we get God. The bad news of sin is that we don't get him. We are at enmity with him. We are separated from him. That is the curse. So what is the blessing that you get God? The Spirit brings us to the Father through the Son so that we might delight in our triune God forever. Some of you were at the funeral yesterday for Scott Houston, and that's a big thing I was trying to preach to the group yesterday about what is Scott experiencing right now. He is experiencing the triune God greater than any of us have ever even imagined in this life. He is beholding the beauty of Christ by the Holy Spirit and enjoying the love of the Father. In other words, when you're saved, you don't just get good news now, but you get even better news later. It only gets better. Amen? And when we evangelize, that is what we're inviting people into. We're not telling people, hey, come be a Christian where life is very boring and it's all about just not doing things. That is not Christianity. Christianity is calling people into true joy. Joy unimaginable. Joy unspeakable. Joy that, frankly, is so great that when we go to heaven, we have to be glorified and perfected in body and soul just to be able to experience the love of God. Amen? It's too great for us to behold. We can behold it now in Christ through the means of grace, but one day we will no longer have to live by faith because then we will have sight. That's the good news of the gospel. That's what we tell people. That's why we evangelize because we're saying, behold your God. We tell people about the message of a Trinitarian salvation. But our message is not just about Trinitarian salvation. It is also a message of what's called double imputation. You can see this in verse 21. <laughs> Excuse me. For our sake, he, the Father, made him, the Son, who is Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me just tell you that there are many people throughout the history of Christianity who think this is one of the most incredible verses in all of Holy Scripture. There is so much truth here that men and women have written countless books about. They've written prayers about. And ministers have preached so much about. In verse 21 is the heart of the gospel. And here's what it is. It's the good news that Christ died for us. It is one of double imputation. And I'll explain that in just a second. But first we have to remember something about who Christ is. As mentioned 
earlier, Christ is God the Son. Christ is God. Once again, you are, when you believe in Jesus, you're not getting a demigod. You're not getting someone like a Hercules, some half God, half man. It's not that. You are getting God himself who took on human flesh. You are getting the very essence of God in Christ. You don't need to go anywhere else to get God but Jesus Christ. He is God who took on our flesh. So what Jesus does, he always does as both God and man. Why is that important? Because when we tell people about who Jesus is, we tell people that because he is God, he has infinite worth. If Jesus were merely or only a man, then he would not have the infinite worth to save a multitude of people from all tribes and tongues. If he were not God, he could not bring us to God. But if he were only God and not truly like us, then he could not represent us. He could not identify with us. He could not apply that salvation to us. The moment that Jesus is not God to any degree, and the moment that Jesus is not man to any degree is the moment he cannot save you and me. And so we tell people, who is this Savior? This Jesus Christ, the man born of a teenage virgin, at one point in his life, he was homeless. And the one who went to the cross and was crucified in one of the most horrible inventions in all of human history. But yet, who also took the wrath of God to save sinners. Who was that? It is the God-man. My friends, we tell people about who Jesus is. Because if we're going to be saved, you've got to get him. But we see in verse 21 that this Christ was sinless. This is something we can hardly fathom because we are like fish swimming in water and someone would come up to us and say, hey, how's the water feeling today? And we would say, what do you mean by water? This is all we know. We don't just sin, we have a sinful nature. We are sinners. Jesus was not. Jesus, when it says that he knew no sin, it doesn't mean that somehow cognitively in his understanding he didn't know about sin. That's not what it means. That word there means an intimate experience with. Meaning that Jesus, not in his nature as a man, nor in any actions, thoughts, words, emotions, anything, nothing about him had an ounce of sin. Because the moment that he is a sinner is the moment he cannot save us. He was sinless. He was spotless. He was without blemish. He was the true lamb of God. You see, Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
My friends, don't ever fall into the heresy of saying, well, that's Jesus, that's different. Because the moment that's different is the moment he cannot save you and me. It is actually because Jesus is sinless that he can be tempted beyond you and I can ever be tempted and yet not fall. That he can bear the weight and yet never collapse. That Christ was sinless his entire life from conception to death. And it is because of that that people can look to him no matter what their sins are and they can be saved. Amen? You see, the gospel of grace is not one about good advice for people to kind of get their act together. We need to repent of that idea. The gospel of grace is for real sinners with real sin who will be really transformed. The gospel of grace is for people who come to Jesus saying, I have nothing. I'm simply clinging to the cross. And that's good news. Because when we go out and evangelize, it does not matter who you run across the most well-dressed or the person who is homeless. It does not matter if you know everything about the things that they did in high school and college or the ways they've corrupted their life or if someone seems to have it all together on social media. Whoever you come across, no matter what they've done, anyone can look to Jesus Christ and be saved. That's the good news. Now, what does this word imputation mean? Because here is where we see the gospel of grace. This word imputation, it is the act of reckoning a legal debt to someone's account. It is uh, what was used in the Greco-Roman culture. It was legal language. It was understood as something, uh, you know, in the financial books. There would be a, a debit or a deficit here, and it would be plucked out of your books, and it would be solved, it would be extinguished, and a credit would be put to your account. Imputation is the trading of places. It is substitution. So when we see here in verse 21, we very clearly see this concept where Jesus takes the place of sinners so that they might receive what he earned. It is double imputation. The entire Bible has been teaching this doctrine. One person points out that Leviticus 7 verse 18 teaches that a person's sins could be charged to the account of an animal that was properly sacrificed and burned, obviously that was looking forward to Christ who truly takes away sin. It also says in Isaiah 53, verse 6 through 12, that it records that people's sins would be placed on the suffering servant who is Christ for him to bear. In other words, the entire Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, is preaching one gospel of grace about how sinners can have their real sin off of themselves and onto Christ so that his righteousness might come to them. Amen? That's the gospel. That's exactly what happened on the cross. (laughs) You see, this gospel of grace is not what some people say, some sort of legal fiction. 
This is actual righteousness, actual substitution. We see this actually in what Hebrews uh, 8 and 9 is pointing out. Listen to this. It's describing what, what actually happened on the cross. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, talking about Jesus, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. Notice the location. A minister in the holy places. And then it says this, that he is in the true tent. The Lord set up not man. The earthly tent says they serve a copy and shadow of the actual heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, remember this in the Old Testament, uh, quoting Exodus 25, the author of Hebrews says, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. What was, what was the point of the tabernacle and temple and the tent of meeting in the Old Testament? What was the point? Why was it structured that way? Why those pieces of furniture and the arrangement and even the colors? Because it was structured after the heavenly reality. You see, that whole thing was looking forward to what Christ would really do on the cross. That he was the actual Lamb of God who shed his blood and it was sprinkled upon the altar so that there might be atonement for us. When people saw merely a physical man suffering excruciatingly on that cross, you're missing it if you think it was merely a physical suffering. Because spiritually something even more real was happening. He was taking the wrath of God so that we might be saved. Amen? He had gone into the holy of holies as the Lamb of God once for all so that we might be saved. There is no legal fiction about that. That is as real as it gets. Jesus on the cross made real atonement, real salvation, real satisfaction. And it is because of the reality of that that we can tell people, if you look to Jesus Christ and if you believe, there is real salvation for you. This is not fake. This is not some new theory. This is not some made-up religion. This is the ultimate reality. Legally, really, when we come to Christ, our sin is no longer counted to us. Amen? And his righteousness is really counted to us. Amen? Not only are your sins forgiven, not only are they pardoned, but now God looks at you and sees you as if you were Christ and accomplished that righteousness. You see, when we go out to evangelize, when we talk to our kids, when we talk to people in church, because... Let's not forget that evangelism does not actually first happen out there. It first happens here. But even when it happens here or wherever we go, we tell everyone, look to Jesus Christ alone and you will be saved. Isn't that amazing? 
It says in verse 21 that he made him to be sin who knew no sin. What does that mean that Christ was made to be sin? One person says, it means that God treated Christ as if he had been sin's embodiment. Another person says that on the cross, God the Father had aligned Christ so totally with sin and its dire consequences that from God's point of view, Christ became indistinguishable from sin itself. Listen, on that cross by a real substitution, by a real imputation, while he was still sinless, he was so seen and treated as if he were the embodiment of sin itself. You must see the cross as Christ taking the multitude of his people. That there could not have, in God the Father's eyes, there could not have been a worse sinner because he so identified himself with sin on that cross. And he poured out his wrath upon him so truly, so really, so that anyone could come to him and be saved. He was sinless all his life, but yet he so identified himself with sin so that there might be no doubt that anyone who comes to Jesus Christ might be saved. Luther says this, Christ took all our sins upon himself, and for them he died on the cross. Therefore, it was appropriate for him to become a thief on the cross. On the cross, he is seen and treated like he was the Apostle Paul, the former blasphemer, persecutor, and assaulter. Like Peter, the denier of Christ, and like David, the adulterer and murderer. My friends, name your sins. Not the sins that you think that's it. Your real sins. The things that are really there that you have tried for years to forget about. Name the real sins of anyone out there. Is Christ somehow not enough for them? Amen? He so identified himself with sin on the cross, and he so really took the wrath of God on the cross for all God's elect, so that it might be totally clear that anyone, regardless of what they've done, regardless of when their death day might come, which for the thief on the cross might be in a moment of hours, that anyone can simply look to Jesus Christ and be saved. Amen? It's amazing. See, when you become a a believer, you must remember that because of your union with Christ, Your sin actually belongs less to you and more to Christ. So when you sit there and you say, well, now what I need to do after I've sinned, I need to just really beat myself up and then I'll come to God. Or maybe what I need to do is make sure that I feel really, really sorry about this sin and then I'll confess it to God. Don't you dare do that. It belongs to Christ. You know, the 
very famous song, Nothing But the Blood. One of the stanzas in there says, nothing can for sin atone, nothing but the blood of Jesus. But here's what Satan loves to do. He loves to only get us to think about the first part of that stanza. He just says, nothing can for sin atone. Nothing can for sin atone. Nothing can for sin atone. And my friends, one thing we need to remember, if those of us who embrace Reformed theology, which is what this church believes, yes, we do proclaim what sin really is, but make no mistake that thinking that somehow you are spiritually mature if you're only walking around saying, all I am is a sinner and that's it. Nothing can for sin atone, nothing but the blood of Jesus, amen? Looking to Jesus with your sin is what matures you. Looking to Jesus with your sin is what gives you power to repent. Looking to Jesus with your sin is what saves you. That's what we do. But not only does he take our sin, he gives us his righteousness. This is amazing. We often only think about the first part and we forget the second part. But my friends, if we only had forgiveness, there would be a major problem. Because then we would still have to go on and fulfill God's law to earn a righteousness. You cannot only be forgiven. You must also have a perfect righteousness if you're going to be saved. And that's what Jesus gives you. Look at, look at again at verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. When it says we might become the righteousness of God, this word means a one-time single act. It is not a continual process. Once you receive Christ's righteousness, it is done. It can never increase nor decrease. It does not grow it does not depend upon you obeying enough to keep it. It is not infused in you. It is fully given to you because of union with Christ. Amen? And that means this. Once it is given to you, you can never lose it. Ever. One author says, In exchange for human sins that have been imputed to Jesus' account, Jesus' righteousness is now imputed to the accounts of all who believe in him as Savior. That's why when we go out and evangelize and if people want to say, well, I don't know, I, I just I haven't, I'm, you know, I stopped going to church. I saw one lady not in our church the other day and she said, I, I've stopped going to church for years. With all due respect, I do not care. <laughs> because all you got to do is look to Jesus and you will receive his righteousness. That should actually be what brings you to church, to hear that good news. You don't make it happen. He makes it happen. All the verbs here are not about us earning it or us cooperating with God. It is not that at all. It is God and his sovereign grace. And that is good news because once he gives it to us, yeah, you are going to sin. And if you could lose your salvation, you would lose it. But Jesus is not about possibilities here. He is about surety. And that's what you get. That's what you get. 
So that no matter who you talk to, no matter who you come across, you can say, with all due respect, I love you. And because I love you, I'm going to tell you this. You have no valid excuses. Just look to Jesus Christ. There, there is no pass go and collect $200. You go straight to Christ, if we can use the Monopoly card as an example. And when you come to Christ, God freely by his grace bestows upon you an infinite righteousness. Have you ever read the book of Revelation? Have you ever read the part where it talks about how the multitude of Christians are clothed with white garments? What is that white garment? It is not yours, and it is not mine. It is the garments of Christ. It is the righteousness of Christ that he gives us. You see... As real as it gets, Christ actually legally and relationally gives us his righteousness. And what's amazing about this text is this, is that means we can go to anyone we come across and we can say, all you must do is believe in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Amen? My man wants excuse me, had the opportunity to go hear a famous preacher back in the 1800s in Scotland named Thomas Chalmers. And one of Thomas Chalmers' uh, big admirers, he went and talked to the man after uh, this guy had gone to listen to Dr. Chalmers. And so uh, this guy who was a big fan of Dr. Chalmers, he came up to this man and he said, what did you think of Dr. Chalmers? The man replied, what did I think of him? He made me think so much about Jesus that I had no time to think about him. My friends, that's what evangelism is. It is not about how good we are at apologetic arguments, although that can help. It is not about our gifts and our persuasion. It is about showing people Jesus Christ. Because that is how people believe. You see, I love this story in 1957 in California, there was a three-year-old boy who came home from vacation Bible school. And he was singing, Jesus loves the little children, all the little children of the world. This apparently had sparked the father's interest. So when his three-year-old son invited his unbelieving dad to come to Sunday school, well, the dad attended. He wanted to hear more. And the dad attended Sunday school and he ended up being born again and believed in Jesus. That man and his family, not only was the man converted, he was called into ministry and then he moved to Mendenhall, Mississippi. And in 1978, this black man who became a believer, he became friends with a former KKK member who was also born again while he was in prison where he had spent eight years for an attempted bombing. The black man who was converted, who befriended a white former KKK man, this black man was none other than John Perkins himself. John Perkins, maybe you're not familiar with Mississippi. John Perkins, who through the preaching of the gospel, not through something else, through the preaching of the gospel, saw what happens personally and relationally. 
that man became a believer because his three-year-old son invited him to Sunday school. Don't you ever think that somehow God can't use you. And don't you ever think that something other than the gospel of grace, some other theory or idea or whatever it might be, don't you think anything else but the gospel of grace does the work. Amen? The gospel does the work. Nothing else is the power of God but the gospel of grace and the gospel about who Jesus is and what he has done. My friends, imagine what will happen this week if you just simply invited someone to come to church. Let me give you one other story. Luis Palau, if I'm saying that correctly, tells a story of a woman in Peru whose life was radically transformed by the power of the gospel. Rosario was this woman's name who was transformed. She was a legit terrorist. This person says she was a brute of a woman who was an expert in several martial arts. In her terrorist activities, she had killed 12 policemen. And when Luis, who was the original person, when they were going about uh, preaching the gospel, she had learned uh, about Rosaria. And uh, when Rosaria heard the gospel, uh, it drove her mad. She made her way to the stadium where Luis would be to try to kill Luis. Inside the stadium, as Rosaria had contemplated how to get to Luis, she began to listen to the message that he had preached on hell. And she fell under conviction for her sins and she embraced Jesus Christ as her savior. Think about that. Ten years later, Luis met this convert for the first time. Since that conversion... Rosario had been assisting in planting five churches, was a vibrant, active witness and worker in the church, and had founded an orphanage that houses over 1,000 children. My friends, just tell people about Jesus. And just invite them to come hear about Jesus. And maybe you were invited this morning. And maybe... You are the one who needs to believe in Jesus Christ to be saved. Don't do anything else but simply believe in him and you will be saved. Let's pray. Our Father of all mercy and grace, we thank you that you have entrusted to us this ministry of reconciliation. A real gospel, but a real savior who really saves us. Oh, Lord, we are asking that you would bless us as we seek to go out and evangelize in Stillwater and beyond. Whether people across the street or around the world, help us to embrace the fact that we indeed are ambassadors. And really, Lord, it is you speaking to others through us. Help us just to simply tell others about the gospel or to simply say, come and hear. And may we see people be born again. We ask all this, Lord Jesus, in your name, amen.